Amen. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of John. John chapter 5. John chapter 5 as we look at God's Word together. And how blessed we are. You know, I'm sitting there thinking to myself as I was preparing to stand here and uh, bring this message this morning about how blessed we are to experience the grace of God the way we do. I mean, we are so blessed, and we are all recipients of God's grace. What is grace? It is the unmerited favor of God. It means that we didn't really do anything, or certainly not enough, to deserve God's love and God's blessing upon our lives, and yet we continue to see it. And all of us are recipients of God's grace. This morning, I'm so thankful that I'm a recipient of God's grace to sit here and to worship with you and Thank God for his blessings and to be reminded even through song like that of his healing. We we're recipients of God's grace. We didn't deserve it, but God saved us and he brought us here to the family. We're all recipients of God's grace. Some of us, we experience it probably more than others, but we know God's grace. Hey, God was graceful to me, gracious to me when he gave me the wife that I have. I married up in life. I don't know if you got that yet or not. But me and Dwight Anderson, we married up in life. <laughs> Didn't do anything to deserve it. And yet God was good to us. God has blessed us, whether it's family, whether it's worship, whether it's to be able to come together as a church, God has been gracious. And I want to show you today, as we look at this third sign that John records for us, I want you to see the grace that is experienced, the grace that, that literally immerses this man who had been without hope for so long. And I hope and pray that as we read through it, we would be reminded of the great grace God has granted us and the grace that we should be thankful for today. In John chapter 5, this is the narrative for us this morning. It says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? Sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately, and immediately, the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. The grace of Christ the grace of God demonstrated to this man who had faced difficulty for 38 years. We see in this passage the experience of grace. We see the experience of grace as, as it is demonstrated for us. It says that there was a time of feast and Jesus comes up to Jerusalem. Jesus is a practicing Jew. Jesus is one to keep the um, feast and the timetables of the day. And he comes to the feast to celebrate. We don't know exactly which one, whether it was the Passover or something else. We just know he's coming up to celebrate this feast. And somehow, in some way, he ends up in this place called Bethesda, this place 
of this place of need, this place of hurt, this place of pain. There Jesus is. You know, when I first start reading this passage and I see Jesus going up to celebrate the feast and somehow ending up in Bethesda, I ask myself, how in the world did Jesus get to Bethesda at a time of celebration? I mean, come on, at a time of celebration, Bethesda is not the place you want to go, right? Not most of us. If it's a time of celebration, we're going to choose another place, Chuck E. Cheese. (laughs) Sorry, I know some of you are, but I got kids at home, and that's about all the illustrations you can get out of me right now are Chuck E. Cheese kind of thoughts. You got to go somewhere like, you got to celebrate. You're not just going to go to Bethesda. But get this, always reminded by this, that God seems to always be right there where the people need him the most. And Jesus Christ, even in a moment of celebration, a feast, is right there where the people need his touch. But you see, Bethesda was something of a sanitarium, if you will. It was a place where People would come and they would bring with them all of their issues. The Bible says that there were there those who were there who were sick, who were blind, who were lame, who were paralyzed. They were all there just sitting around the pool waiting for movement. Now get this. Bethesda means something like house of overflowing, house of mercy, or can be translated house of grace. It is the place of grace, and yet it would seem anything but that, right? I mean, not many of us would think of it as the house of grace. If we were to go in and we were to see the destitute people lying around hoping for something, hoping for the movement of water, not many of us in this place would list it as a home or a house of grace. Rather, we would see it as a place of destitution of desperate appeal. And yet, here Jesus is. And here he is in the house of grace where people need him and need God the Father the most. It says that they lay there. And notice what it says. It says in verse 4, For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. And this was their hope. This was their, is that somehow they would get to the pool first. Again, doesn't conjure up images of grace, does it? It conjures up images of human achievement and accomplishment. I mean, here they are trying in a mad dash to get to the pool. How sad this is. The scene. How destitute it is. And in the midst of this scene, verse 5, it says, A certain man was there who had had an infirmity 38 years. A long time he had been lame. 38 years. I did a little bit of study, and I realized that in, the, in this day, basically the life expectancy of a Roman man wasn't even 38 days. Not even 38 days. Not even the life expectancy. And yet 38 years... 38 years, that is, right? (laughs) Seeing if you were awake. That's all I was trying to do. (laughs) 38 years. 38 years he had been lame. 
longer than the life expectancy of the Roman citizen. Here he was, and he was hoping. But yet there was little hope, if any hope. It says Jesus saw him lying there, and it's very interesting in verse 6. It says that he knew that he already had been in that condition a long time. He already knew that. The tense of the verb means that he had known it for some time, that he had known it decisively, that he knew the situation of this man. Now, perhaps Jesus had heard about him. Perhaps Jesus had seen him before. I believe personally that Jesus had that God knowledge, the omniscience at this point, to know exactly where this guy was and what he was facing, just as God knows in our lives, doesn't he? He knows exactly what we're facing. He knows the physical, the spiritual, the emotional difficulties that face us every day. He knows us. And he says that Jesus knew him. Jesus looks at him and says, do you want to be made well? Well, what a question that is. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to be healed? Look, 38 years you have been lame and yet somebody comes and says, do you want to be healed? Now, at this point in my life, I think I would answer with a great affirmation here. I would say, absolutely yes. But note the response of the sick man. Note that it seems that he had been programmed by culture and by the scene in which he had found himself. And he said, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. In other words, he said, I I don't know what you think you can do because, look, I've been here for a long time and I would love to get to the pool first, but I can't do it. And it seems like I can't do it and nobody else is there to help me. Everybody else is going for their own. It's not going to happen. Notice how programmed he has been by the culture. I mean, he's almost given up at this point. He's still there by the pool, but basically he knows there's no hope because nobody's going to help him. And look, God helps those who help themselves. That's what it sounds like. And there's no way he can help himself. Again, does this sound like the house of grace? Rather, it sounds like the house of human achievement and accomplishment. And let's see if we can get it on our own. So often, we miss grace because we're trying to do things on our own. So often, we forget the healing power of God because we think we can do it by ourselves. And yet here, this man, as he's given up, as he experienced hopelessness, Jesus is there to bring grace And to bring healing. Verse 8. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Look at Jesus. Jesus looks at this man and says, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And I love verse 9. I love those first two words. And immediately. And immediately. It says... The man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. 
You see the power of God. You see the grace of Christ. He looks at him and he says, rise, take up your bed and walk. And what does the man, what, what does he do? Exactly what Jesus said. Immediately, immediately he takes up his bed and he walks. And that is the power of Christ as is demonstrated. Immediate healing, immediate power, immediate strength. And that is the same God we serve today. The God that can speak into our lives and immediately we can experience his power. Now listen, God can heal, God can work in his own way. Now, and I, and I am still a believer that God heals, okay? Hope that doesn't make you scared this morning, get a little worried about me, but I believe God heals. I think he still works in our lives. And He can choose to do that in his own way, like through the Gospel of John. He may not be physically present, as we talked about last week, and still bring healing to a person's life. Or he may be there and speak into a person's life, or he may later on in John take salve or mud and he may rub it into somebody's eyes. It's his own purpose, his own plan. It's his sovereignty to decide when healing will come and how it will come. But make no doubt, he still has the power to heal. And it is still as decisive. His power is, as it was when he went to this man. And this man now experiences grace. I said to you, grace is the unmerited favor of God. That's the classic definition. What had this man done to really warrant his healing? Nothing. He couldn't get up and do enough because he was lame. He couldn't go out and accomplish enough in human achievement to somehow deserve to be healed. But God demonstrated grace through Christ, and this man was healed. Isn't that quite the portrait of salvation? There's nothing that we can do. There's nothing we can do to deserve or to earn our salvation. You and I, the Bible says we have been dead in our sins. Before Christ, we are dead in our sins. Dead men can't somehow free themselves from the bondage of death. Only with God's intervention could we come to life. And it was God's grace, purposeful grace in our lives where we could come to salvation. See, this lame man, he experienced grace. And all of a sudden, it was as though he had been immersed in grace. He was wanting to get into the water. He was wanting to be immersed. Every time the angel moved or perhaps the springs from below the pond, it began to move the water. He wanted to get in it. He wanted to experience this immersion. I I have a feeling he would have been Baptist too, don't you? None of this just sprinkling a little bit on, just douse me, let me get in the water. I think that's what he would have wanted to do. But he didn't have to worry about a pool, a physical pool. He didn't have to worry about being immersed in this water of the pool of Bethesda. Because now Christ had immersed him in grace. He had been baptized in grace. And he had been healed. The experience of grace. 
If you've never experienced grace before, and I say to you that all of us really have, but if you've never experienced the gracious gift of salvation in your life, then let me say to you today, you could. And you would if you came and surrendered your life to Christ. When you finally realize there's nothing you can do, when you finally realize that no human deed will ever guarantee you salvation, you will be in the path to true salvation in your life. The experience of grace. Well, I want you to see as you continue reading through that you not only see the experience of grace in this passage, but you do see the enemy of grace as well. I stopped reading purposely at the end of verse 9. You don't think I did. You thought I just messed up again, right? But I stopped at verse 9 purposely right in the middle of the verse because I want you to see that after this man experiences grace, he also experiences or he sees the enemy of grace. Verse 9, it says, And that day was the Sabbath day. As though John just kind of put in parenthetical, in in parentheses here, a parenthetical expression, and it was the Sabbath day. Well, what does that matter? I mean, we're just happy he was healed, right? We are, but not everybody. I want you to see this. Verse 10. The Jews, therefore, I think here talking more about the religious leaders than Jews themselves, but the religious leaders of the Jews, therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Is there not something strange about this response? I want you to put it in context, okay? A man who had been lame for 38 years. A man who had been lying by this pool at Bethesda. All of a sudden, you're walking down the street and you see the man that you know that has been lame for 38 years. And this man is walking. This man has his bedroll, his pallet. He's carrying it down the street. He is walking. What kind of response do you think would accompany that event? If you were to, let's say this. If you were to see a man that you know every Sunday morning at church, every Sunday morning that had had difficulty, that could not walk, had been bound to a wheelchair, that every Sunday morning you had seen him, and then all of a sudden, one Sunday morning, you see him come walking in, and he walks down this aisle, how would you respond? I hope better than this. Would you simply look at it and say, now, I don't know why you brought that NIV in here because we are more a New King James kind of people right now. You wouldn't notice something like that. There would be revival. There would be renewal. There would be a moment of excitement and celebration there would be a moment when we would forget that we were Baptist. I hope we would. 
Oh, that would be a moment to celebrate. And thank God for his blessings. And know that it was God and God alone that had worked. But notice these rulers. They see the man and their question is, Hey, why are you carrying your bedroll on the Sabbath? They had missed the point of God's grace. As a matter of fact, they were true enemies of God's grace. See, the man answered them and said, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Where is that man? Who's the one that told you to, bro- to break the Sabbath? Because that's what you're doing. You're breaking the rules of the Sabbath by carrying your bedroll. Enemies of grace can also be called legalists. Have you ever met a legalist before? If you have, you'll never forget him. At least you'll not remember the joy that you experienced. Legalist. Jesus dealt with them, and so do we. Now, let me say this up front. I believe in God's standards. I believe in God's truth. You've heard me preach that and teach that. I believe there are that God's commands are never-ending. That what God has said in the past is still what God means today. I believe that. I'm not speaking about truth or watering it down in any way. What I'm talking about is taking God's truth and adding our own laws so that we might look good to other people. Legalist. One of my favorite writers, you've heard me quote many times, Chuck Swindoll. Chuck Swindoll defined legalism. And this is what he said. Legalism is the establishment of standards carefully selected by people for the purpose of celebrating human achievement under the guise of pleasing God. Legalism is righteousness as defined by human beings, although those who give the definition frequently cite God as the source of the standard. In reality, the standards come from culture, tradition, and most frequently the personal preferences of those who maintain positions of power or influence. Legalism is based on list. And oh, how legalists love their list. If you keep every item on the list of do's and don'ts, then you're spiritually acceptable. But if you don't follow the prescribed standard, then you are unworthy of God's favor and the approval of of others. Naturally, legalists always know how God judges and they are more than willing to act on his behalf. Legalist. May I tell you that I have a tendency to be a legalist in my life? I'm a rule follower. Always have been. Just a rule follower. These are the rules. Everybody ought to play by the rules. Been there with me? I mean, it's kind of like this is the policy. That's the policy. I may not like it, but that's the policy I will follow. Just always been like that in my life. So thus, if I'm not careful, I have a tendency to move into legalism. 
But notice, legalists do not recognize the grace of God as they should. And they certainly don't have the moments of celebration. They're worried about the rules. And notice they make up their own rules. And that's what we often do. We make up our own rules. And and may I say this, God's law is sufficient enough. He does not need us to improve upon it. Reluctantly, but you said it. (laughs) He doesn't need us to improve upon his law or his rules, his commands. His commands are perfect. His commands are trustworthy. He doesn't need us to come up with do's and don'ts. He's already shown us what is right and what is wrong. Oftentimes when we come up with our own list, we make lists that make us look better. They're lists that we prescribe. They're man-made. And they make us look better. Let me tell you what these legalists had done concerning the Sabbath. They had come up with rule after rule of being able to protect the integrity of the Sabbath. They wanted to make sure people were resting. So what did they come up with? Rules to make sure they were resting. 39 categories of forbidden activity on the Sabbath. I want to read you these activities. Listen. Carrying, burning, extinguishing, finishing, writing, erasing, cooking, washing, sowing, tearing, knotting, untying, shaping, plowing, planting, reaping, harvesting, threshing, winnowing, selecting, sifting, grinding, kneading, combing, spinning, dyeing, chain stitching, warping, weaving, unraveling, building, demolishing, trapping, shearing, slaughtering, skinning, tanning, smoothing, and marking. You exhausted? I wanted to read that to you because I wanted you to see that even trying to remember or say all of those things can be exhausting. Can you imagine trying not to do them? And again, who had come up with this? They had taken God's law. Remember the Sabbath? Keep it holy. That you're going to do that. And they had added all the ways that they were supposed to be done. That was supposed to be accomplished. And what they had done is they had taken the day of rest... And they had made it exhausting just by trying to keep up with God's laws and God's rules. Here they are after the experience of grace, after God working in a person's life. Here they are still nitpicking based upon their own laws and lists. They're the enemies of grace. Legalist. I can be one of the world's worst, as I've said, about following rules, making sure things are done according to policy and procedure. But let me say this to you. When we see God demonstrate His grace, and there's no doubt that He demonstrated His grace, it's okay to just simply step back and celebrate what God has done. We don't always have to worry and figure out all the different things. You know, some of those things like probably something like I would say, probably like, well, you know, that's good, but next time 
we might ought to go through a committee somewhere. I've been Baptist a long time, people. (laughs) That's good, but you know, next time we need to make sure. No, what we need to say and what I need to say is, God, thank you for your work. Thank you for your, your demonstration of grace. And God, just simply thank you for what you have done. To you be all the glory and praise. We need to celebrate. That's what you had hoped you would see here in this passage. That they would celebrate what would happen and what had happened in in this man's life. You see the experience of grace. You see the enemies of grace. Then you see the embodiment of grace. Christ Jesus. Verse 14, it says, Afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The language of this passage indicates that Jesus went after him or searched for him. He went to find him. And when he found him, he said to him, Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now, he did not say that this man had been lame because of his sin. He did not say that. In John chapter 9, which we'll look at in just a few weeks, he'll actually address that kind of faulty theology. He did not say that here. What he said, and what I believe he means as as I've looked at it, is that he says, basically, go and make sure that you are giving attention to your spiritual life. Do not be sinning. You follow God. Don't be going off on your own because there is a worse thing coming. Worst thing coming being what? I think spiritual judgment, he says. Spiritual judgment is going to be worse than 38 years of being lame. Spiritual judgment is coming, especially when you see the context later on as he talks about judgment that's coming. He says, you go and you take a, give attention to your spiritual life. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Verse 16, for this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Can you imagine? Because Jesus healed on the Sabbath, they were so zealous that they said, now we've got to kill him. We've got to kill him for what he is doing. And you got to love the way Jesus responds here, right? He's got to be a preacher. Because he is adding gas to the fire. Verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Verse 18. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him. It made them that much matter. Now that seems like, verse 17, such an innocent statement. But notice verse 18. Not only because he broke the Sabbath, but also because he said that God was his father and he made himself equal with God. That Jesus was saying, I am the embodiment of grace itself. I am at the same purpose, with the same purpose, the same essence as God the Father. In so many ways, he's saying, I am 
God. And they responded in such a way. Now, there are so many people I hear, well, Jesus never said that he was God. How do you explain the response of the religious leaders in these passages and in others without coming to that conclusion that they knew that he was claiming to be God? And if that wasn't enough, look at verse 19. Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I love the Greek. Literally, it is a double amen. It's like, and it's like the way they say it in Nicaragua. Some of you have been to Nicaragua? How they say it? Amen. Man, I can preach down there when they start saying that. Amen, amen. In other words, amen, amen. And when you see that in the old King James, it used to be verily, verily. When you see those words, it means something like, listen up, this is true. I'm about to tell you. He says, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. In other words, what I have done here has been within the father's will. And you know, the father does work on Sunday, or the Sabbath day in this case. But for us, the idea of Sunday, that the father does work. You know he worked this morning, right? That's the reason you're here. That everything continues to consist through his power and his strength. He doesn't take Sunday off in his care for you or his care for me. This world is sustained by his power. And he says, all I'm doing is what the Father continues to do. Verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater things than these that, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, and that all honor, that all should honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. He does not honor the Son. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Notice two prerogatives there. It says the Son has the right to give life. The Son has the right to judge. Who has, who has the right to give life and who has the right to judge? God does. And now Jesus claims these prerogatives. Why? Because he's God. He is the Son of God, embodying grace. He is divine. He is God. And here, this is what Jesus does in order to use this miracle to bring this message that he is the embodiment of grace itself. What did John say in that prologue? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That God the Father sent Jesus Christ in flesh for us. God incarnate for us. A gracious act. A grace-filled act. He came on our behalf to bring us salvation. And He is Lord. Later in this chapter, He will say that John the Baptist testified to who I am. The miracles testified to who I am. The Father testifies to who I am. And even the Scriptures themselves testify to who I am. A fourfold testimony that I am 
God. So then that leads us to a decision point. Will we recognize Jesus as the embodiment of grace itself? And thus, will we experience grace in our lives as salvation is applied? C.S. Lewis probably put that choice in the best way that I can imagine. Speaking of Jesus' identity, and his lordship as he claims here, C.S. Lewis said there are basically three ways in which you can deal with this man Jesus. You can hear his testimony today and you can leave and with basically making one of these three decisions. One, you can simply dismiss this Jesus today as a liar. You can leave here and you can say, you know, I don't believe what he said. I don't believe that he is God. And you can leave that way. I think that's a pitiful way to leave, but you can leave that way. I will say this to you, though. Don't go away from here and say that Jesus is a good man. Because I don't know a culture that esteems lying. If he deceived us, then he's certainly not a good man, as some religions would teach. Well, you can leave here by saying that, or you can leave here by saying, well, Jesus was a lunatic. He was a madman. Because look, if people claim to be God, and they're not God, and they're not lying about it, then they must be mentally imbalanced. Maybe you leave here today saying that. Again, I think that's a terrible conclusion, but you could leave here. But I say to you, if he's not a liar and he's not a lunatic, just as C.S. Lewis said, that means there's only one option left. And that is that he's Lord. Just as he claimed to be. And if he's Lord, that confronts you and it confronts me. And it brings us to a decision point. Will we follow his lordship? Will we see him as the embodiment of grace itself? And then, will we bow to him as Lord? See, he can take the house of destitution. He can bring it and transform it into the house of grace. And he can bring your life today and transform it. Bring healing, spiritual healing, so that you can experience grace. Today in this place, would you accept his lordship? For those of you who've been wavering back and forth, would you come today and just surrender to him and give your life to him? For those of us who have, would we continue to surrender to his lordship for every area of our lives? What a difference he'd make if we would humble ourselves.